Hello and welcome to Sports in the Waiting Room. I am your host, Chris Russo. Thank you for joining me this morning, evening, afternoon, night, whatever you could be listening at any possible time. I'm recording in the afternoon. The day before Thanksgiving, as a matter of fact, I try not to, well, I try not to say which date I'm recording the podcast, but let's face it, it's Wednesday every week. I Well, most weeks. Very grateful for you tuning in. If you are an American, you live in America, very happy Thanksgiving to you and yours. I know we do have some internet, you know, you may be listening internationally. I've looked at the demographics That's and our market research, and our market, our market research tells us that there are people from, you know, outside the U.S. who listen to us, and we're very appreciative that you do. It's nice to have a, maybe a broader audience than I would have expected, but, you know, we have quite a bit to discuss this week. We start with college football. First thing, uh, let's, let's go through the standings, all right, first off. In the CFP rankings this week, Georgia, Ohio State, Michigan, and TCU, nothing has changed. One through four, all 11-0 and teams. At most, three of those teams will remain undefeated after this week. As, of course, Saturday, it'll be Michigan and Ohio State. The game, again, it will be in Columbus. And it'll be the first time since... 2006. It's the first time actually since 2006 that Michigan has started at 11-0. That year, they took on Ohio State. Well, of course they took on Ohio State, but Michigan was ranked number one in the country. Ohio State was number two. I believe it's the only time that's ever happened. It was definitely the first time it's ever happened. I believe it's the only time that's ever happened between those two teams where they faced off as one and two in the country, and of course they played at the end of the regular season. Ohio State went on to win that game and then I believe lose in the national championship game to LSU, if memory serves me correctly. Could have been, I want to say LSU, it could have been Florida, I could be wrong. But regardless, this is going to be the biggest game between these two teams since, at the very least, last year. It's probably the biggest game that they have played since that 06 matchup. Michigan coming off a nail-biting victory. You know, they may have been on upset alert, although, of course, they were at home. This was probably going to be, you could argue, at least down the stretch, it was going to be their toughest game of the season before Ohio State as they took on Illinois, who is no longer ranked, had lost two in a row, but had gone to a 7-1 and record. Before that, had one of the best backs in the country in Chase Brown. Michigan really struggled later on, pretty much once Blake Corum was knocked out of this game. He had 18 carries for 108 yards, but he only had one carry in the second half after hurting his knee just before halftime. Michigan with a bad turnover on that on that play as Corum was injured, but Jake Moody nailed a 35-yard field goal in the final minute as Michigan held off Illinois by a score of 19-17 to to close out their home season, winning that one at the big house. Ohio State with a larger margin of victory, but honestly, I, th- I think it was a little more narrow than the score would indicate on paper. Ohio State holding off the Maryland Terrapins 43-30 to in College Park. C.J. Stroud was also limping a bit during the game. Both of the, Look, of course, it's Michigan-Ohio State, and both teams are undefeated. Both of these guys are clearly going to play, Coram and Stroud, the Heisman candidates for their respective teams. But 
they will probably be each a little banged up. It's funny, I did not think that Michigan's offense would actually go downhill that quickly. I thought a lot, I knew a lot of it had to do with Corum, but obviously a lot of it also had also to do with their offensive line, though they could not run the ball whatsoever later on in that game, especially with no Donovan Edwards. By the way, pretty similar to Michigan's victory, TCU survived Baylor this week 30-28 to on the road despite just a wild sequence of events and a very some questionable decision-making where the Horned Frogs decided to hand off the ball with no timeouts and then they kick a game-winning field goal as time expires. So TCU will go into their final game of the regular season. It will be against Iowa State. At home, that'll be at 4 o'clock on Saturday, and then they will face either Kansas State or Texas in the Big 12 championship game. All Kansas State needs to do is win. Texas needs a win and a Kansas State loss against Kansas. Texas will be playing Baylor, as a matter of fact. So you have Georgia, Ohio State, Michigan, TCU. LSU, again, the CFP kind of taking the quality wins over overall record, not to mention the SEC factor. LSU ranked at 5th at 9-2, despite the fact that USC is 10-1. and one. USC is at 6. Alabama is at 7 at 9-2. and two. Highly unlikely they will even make the playoff anyway, as Georgia and LSU are guaranteed to play each other in the SEC championship game. Clemson at 8-10-1. Oregon at 9-9-2. Tennessee also highly unlikely to make the playoff at 9-2 after just an embarrassing loss at South Carolina this week. Penn State, not going to make it. Kansas State, not going to make it. I still think, I still honestly think Washington might have an outside shot just because, I mean, if they end up getting to the Big Ten, Big Ten, to the Pac-12 championship game, I think they need a, a a win and an Oregon loss. Oregon has the tiebreaker. And upsetting USC, Washington could honest, could honestly make a huge jump. But odds are it's going to be Georgia. Again, it's probably going to be Georgia, the Ohio State-Michigan winner, and TCU. And I don't know. At this point, it might be LSU. It depends how they would show up against Georgia in the SEC championship game. Not a very difficult week for Georgia as they take on Georgia Tech. TCU also very likely to win. LSU probably should win. USC handled business against UCLA last week. And so, yeah, it's it's going to be a really fun one from Columbus as really Michigan's best player and Ohio State's best player, maybe a little more so on Michigan's side, are a little bit banged up, but Ohio State has such an incredible receiving core. I think Michigan has an underrated receiving core as well. Odds are Ohio State will win this game, but it, it, I think it's going to depend a lot more on Corum's health. And it, Look, if Michigan can control the run game, they can control the entire game. They are a very good time of possession team, very strong defensive team. Somehow, I believe, actually, in terms of points allowed, they are a better defensive team than they were last year with Aiden Hutchinson and David Njaba, that they're more of a no-name defense, but really going to be a great game. Odds are Ohio State will take that one, however. Let's actually point out that it will be 
though it doesn't make a difference, at least until the Big Ten championship game, if anything, if the Big Ten West team is able to pull it off, it's going to be a very fun Saturday within the Big Ten West. Now, to be fair, Iowa, all that all Iowa needs is a win to lock things up, or Purdue and Illinois losses, but Iowa plays a Nebraska team that's had a very, very weak year, losing Scott Frost, and so that's probably what's going to happen, but still, you have Iowa still in the thick of it, Purdue still in the thick of it, Illinois still able to make it, Minnesota and Wisconsin would have would be able to tie with Minnesota with Purdue and Iowa losses, but neither team would have a tiebreaker. They'd both be knocked out. They actually face each other. But that should be a fun one. The Cincinnati Tulane loser in the AAC, by the way. Well, first off, it's probably going to be Iowa that will represent the Big Ten West. But whoever does win the Big Ten West, be it Iowa, Purdue, or Illinois, Purdue needing a win and an Iowa loss, Illinois leading needing a win and losses by both of those teams, Iowa just needing a win. The winner of the Big Ten West will take on the Michigan-Ohio State winner. Frankly, probably lose big time in the Big Ten championship game, as Iowa did to Michigan last year. Then you also have in the American, you have Cincinnati and Tulane, two teams that frankly should have more of a shot at the playoff, even as two-loss teams, just because there are, I mean, LSU's a two-loss team and they're at fifth. I know it's the SEC, but, you know, those two teams should probably be top ten. But Cincinnati and Tulane, the loser of that game will probably miss the AAC championship game because... Cincinnati and Tulane, both 6-1 and one in conference, both 9-2 and two overall, by the way. The loser of that game if will be in a tiebreak if UCF beats a 1-10 South Florida team. A USF team that's 1-10 overall, 0-7 in the conference. If UCF wins that game, the Knights are guaranteed to play in the AAC title game because they beat both Cincinnati and Tulane this season, and it sets up for an even tougher matchup in that conference title game for either of those teams. So, I mean, the loser of that game, well, winner of that game is going to have a struggle too, but the loser of that game, that Cincinnati-Tulane game, will have a tough, tough time. We already know Clemson will play UNC in the ACC title game. It'll be, again, TCU against either Kansas State or Texas. Michigan or Ohio, or Ohio State against Iowa, Purdue, or Illinois. Looking just up and down here. Pac-12, it's going to be USC against either Oregon or Washington. SEC, Georgia, and LSU. Those are the major conferences, at least. All right, so let's get past the Saturday games to the Sunday games. And this week, the Thursday games, talking about the NFL week. But talking, uh, talking about the past NFL week. Tennessee Titans defeating the Green Bay Packers Thursday night in Green Bay. Titans by a score of 27-17. Ryan Tannehill, 22-27, of 3.33, two touchdowns. Did throw a pick that was not great. The Packers did contain the run game of Derrick Henry quite a bit. Twenty-eight. He had 87 yards, but it was on 28 carries. He was at just over three yards a carry. Did have a touchdown in this game. Packers put up 11 points in the third quarter, but it was ultimately not enough as they falter, go back down to 4-7 and seven after a surprising win against the Cowboys. Titans go to 7-3 and three on the year. Bears and Falcons on Sunday. The Bears won at 27-24 on a 53-yard try from Ridgewood, New Jersey native. I'll point that one out right now. Young Hui Koo, 53-yard try, won at 27-24. to 24. 
The Falcons are at 5-6, still under 500, but still having an opportunity to win a surprisingly weak NFC South this year. And uh, unfortunately, though, Kyle Pitts, believed to have suffered from a torn MCL in that victory, Pitts not having an incredible year, just over 35 yards per game, but he has turned it up at the right times in you know, more shootout-like games. He had five catches for 80 yards in a 37-34 OT win against the Panthers a few weeks ago. He also had a season-high 87 yards receiving, also on five catches in that 27-23 win in Seattle. So even though he's at 356 yards in 10 games, he is still perhaps their biggest receiving threat. As a matter of fact, even though he only had three catches and 43 yards in that game for Atlanta, he was still their leading receiver. Marcus Mariota only threw for 131 yards. This is a team that runs the ball a lot more. They rely more on their special teams. Cordero Patterson is a huge, huge piece of that offense and special teams. And yeah, you know, they're still at five and six. They're four and two at home. And so that's a, that's a tough loss for an Atlanta team that's fairly thin. I mean, especially with Calvin Ridley and what happened and what happened with him this past year, a team that's fairly thin in terms of obviously he's a tight end, but you know, just pass catchers. Bills beat the Browns 31-23 in a very difficult game because it was in Detroit. The Bills had to leave after this lake effect snow. They went up by a score of 31-23. Bills go to 7-3 on the year. Jacoby Brissett, a surprising game aided by, probably aided by that dome and just that more tempered climate more temperate climate, 28-41, 324, three touchdowns, no picks, was sacked only once in this game, although Nick Chubb was contained for 14 carries and 19 yards. Josh Allen, not incredible, 18 of 27, 197, one touchdown, no picks, but the Bills ran for 171 yards. Funny to think, actually, that the Bills were more of a running team inside a dome, and the Browns, typically more of a run-based team, at least this season, were more of a passing team, and yet the Bills pulled off the win. So it was a very, very strange kind of flip. Browns certainly competed, but they're still 3-7 and seven on the year. Eagles topped the Colts 17-16 with 14 points in the fourth quarter. Jalen Hurts with a touchdown in the final minute. Colts dropped to 4-6-1. Eagles go to 9-1 and one after the, you know, the Colts really looked like the stronger team for most of this game. But ultimately, the Eagles, after that loss last week to Washington, giving the 72 Dolphins their toast, the Eagles keep pace in the NFC. They remain the best team in the NFL in terms of record at 9-1, and and they have yet to lose on the road. Now this really interesting Jets game that's got a lot of people mad, at least friends of mine. 10-3, the Patriots defeat the Jets. And somehow, even in the post-Brady era, and a Jets team that is six and four this year, four and one on the road. That's right; they lost their first road. It's the first time this year they've lost a road game. The Jets still find ways to lose to the Patriots, ten three, as Marcus Jones has a punt return touchdown, first of the season for any team in the NFL. 
And apparently Zach Wilson's going to be benched. Didn't really take any responsibility after a, a softball question in the postgame. Didn't take any responsibility for the lack of offensive support in this game. 9 of 22 for 77 yards. I'll give him credit in that he did not turn the football over. And he also had to absorb four sacks in this game. But just an ugly, ugly game. He actually was their leading rusher. Three carries for 26 yards. The Jets in total only had 59 yards on the ground and under 140 yards of total offense. Ugly, ugly game for them. Even for the Patriots, Mac Jones was efficient. Even though the Patriots offense only put up three points and the team only put up ten, Mac Jones, despite being sacked six times, did not turn the football over, went 23 of 27 for 246 yards. That's not an awful game. The Patriots were just under 100 yards rushing. Ramondre Stevenson was really contained, though. 15 carries for 26 yards. But it was just a, a slugfest, a real, real slugfest. And just a disappointing, winnable game from the Jet perspective. And it's weird to think that the Jets, after knocking off Buffalo, fall to the Patriots again. It's the second time in three weeks. That being said, it's also only their second loss since week four. Their schedule, not necessarily easy coming up. They're going to have the Bears this week. They're iffy, I suppose. I've put a lot more trust in Justin Fields, I think, this year. Then they have to face the Vikings on the road. Then the Bills on the road. They face the Lions at home. Lions also iffy. Maybe a bit of a questionable one as they will have a primetime game against the Jaguars. Then they go to Seattle. Then they go to Miami. So it's... A weird, weird time for the Jets. A good time for the Patriots who are back in the playoff picture with that tiebreaker against the Jets. But very, very odd. And definitely a disconnect in the locker room with Zach Wilson at quarterback. And so Wilson, who wasn't even necessarily that impressive when they were winning, will sit. And it's, obviously it has to be an issue if they'd won, what, four in a row, I think, before that? And five of six. So obviously it's not just an issue of on the field. It's perhaps just an issue of trust. Now Robert Sala has apparently said that Zach Wilson's career as a Jet is not over. And it's a long season. You still have seven games to play in the regular season. And the Jets still very well could make the playoffs. Maybe even they'd need some help. But honestly, six and four where they are now, they could still win the division. Because, I mean, they're a game back of the Bills and the Dolphins. They are tied with New England. Of course, New England has the tiebreaker. That just shows how strong the AFC East is, is this year, that the Jets are in last place, but they are 6-4 and four and just outside the playoff picture. So, we still very well could see... We could see four teams from the AFC East make the playoffs this year. And after... Watching the Commanders-Eagles game, it's very possible we could see four NFC East teams as well. Commanders, by the way, won this week by a score of 23-10. to Biggest thing coming out of that, Taylor Heineke is again their starting quarterback. 
Heineke, 4-1 on the year, threw for 191 yards. Kendall Fuller pulled off a pick six as the Commanders took this one 23-10 in Houston. Again, Taylor Heineke has not been spectacular. He's managed the game. He's done enough. And the defense has been very strong. Now, the Texans are a team that's at 1-8-1, but they're almost like the Lions last year where they've, they've lost a lot of games, but they've been in a lot of games as well. Look at their matchups with the Eagles, with the Giants in this game. They lost by 13 at home, but you know, fairly low-scoring game, so not awful. Saints this week beat the Rams 27-20. to Andy Dalton throws for three TDs, and the win goes 21 of 25. Stafford leaves again. 11 of 18, 159, two touchdowns, but leaves again with an injury. Weird time for the Rams, 3-7. and seven. Still not a particularly strong NFC West, but very ugly year for them to this point. The Lions win their third straight game and go to 4-6. and six. Still making a chase for that wild card spot. Vikings will probably win the division, but still making a chase for the wild card. They pull off a surprise win at the Giants, 31-18. Giants go to 7-3. Two games behind the Eagles for first place in the division and the conference, and the league for that matter. Tied with Dallas now after the Cowboys crush the Vikings. 40-3. An insane 40-3 win over the Vikings, who dropped to 8-2. Cowboys have that tiebreaker. The Giants can try to snatch victory back tomorrow, as I record this, tomorrow, Thanksgiving Day, in Dallas. It's the first time that I can remember these two teams playing each other in, it's got to be at, le- at the very least 15 years since they played each other on Thanksgiving. I certainly do not remember that. The Giants, for a good portion of this game, actually, well, for part of this game, actually looked like the better team, at least on paper, because it's funny. Daniel Jones went 27-44. He threw for 341 yards and a touchdown, but a lot of that was the fact that he had to play from behind. And the bigger thing, he threw two picks in this game. So... You'd rather have a game where he throws for 190 yards, a touchdown, no picks, than 341 and two picks that both led to Detroit scores. Not to mention, Graham Gano missed two extra points. I mean, in a 13-point game, how big of a difference does that really make? But he missed two extra points. Giants failed on another two-point conversion, so that's three points right there. And then Jones throws two picks each of which leads to a touchdown. Jared Goff was not sacked in this game. 17 of 26, 165. No touchdowns, no picks. But Detroit just chewed up the football, just chewed up the turf, 160 yards on the ground. And the takeaways were huge. as ultimately the Lions had a bit of an edge in possession. Just under 32 minutes, they held the ball. Total yards, the edge went to the Giants by nearly 80 yards. Giants had more first downs. 
certainly more yards through the air, but the Lions dominated on the ground. Saquon Barkley really had a tough day for the Giants. 15 carries, 22 yards. I mentioned it with a couple of guys this week with Stevenson. I mean, obviously, Saquon Barkley is a guy of whom you definitely expect more, but Barkley and in some ways Derrick Henry, tough week for big-name running backs, but Barkley in particular. His, his, long car- his longest carry was four yards. Daniel Jones was actually their leading rusher. Seven carries for 50 yards and a touchdown. And so the Giants were just playing from behind too much in this game. Wondell Robinson had nine catches for 100 yards, really showing up. But, of course, as most Giant receivers are, done for the year with an ACL injury. They've lost Robinson and they've lost Shepard, which has led the Giants even more into that lottery, I suppose, or that that contest, that bidding war for OBJ, along with the Dallas Cowboys. Also, as we mentioned, the Detroit passing game, Adoree Jackson of the Giants, out four to six weeks after suffering an MCL sprain. So he's going to be out, puts him out, pretty much until around Christmas and maybe up until the last week of the regular season. Really disappointing loss for the Giants. They're still in the playoffs at 7-3, but tied now with Dallas. Crucial game in Dallas this week. Again, pulling off not only an upset, but just a huge statement win over the Vikings. 40-3. In Minneapolis, Dak Prescott, 22 of 25, 276, two touchdowns. Cooper Rush actually played in this game for a little bit. What's funny, too, the Vikings only turned the ball over once. That one turnover, a fumble coming on the opening drive, a sign of things to come. Yet again, it only turned into three points for Dallas. And so... 37 were just purely earned by the Dallas offense. Just an absolute thrashing. As Prescott and briefly Cooper Rush combined for over 300 yards passing, Dallas had just over 150 yards on the ground. Again, sort of that tandem attack. Tony Pollard, 15 carries, 80 yards. Ezekiel Elliott, not a great day outside of the red zone. 15 carries, 42 yards, two touchdowns. Pollard had two receiving touchdowns, six catches for 109 yards. Nobody else had more than 50, so a very, very balanced attack for Dallas in this game as they held the ball for over 37 minutes. And a Minnesota team that just looked dead. Justin Jefferson had three catches for 33 yards. Adam Thielen had two catches for 25 yards. Dalvin Cook had 11 carries, 72 yards. Kirk Cousins, 12 of 23, 105. Sacked seven times in this game. An ugly, ugly game for the Vikings, which maybe proves the superiority of the NFC East to the NFC North, where there's a lot more parity, for one thing, if even the Commanders can knock off the Eagles, but maybe the Vikings are just not that strong a football team. As they actually, wow, that's really surprising. The Vikings are actually now a minus two in terms of point differential. 
despite being 8-2 and two on the year. Kind of similar to the Giants, actually. Giants win a lot of tight games. That's been one of their criticisms. But even then, they're 7-3, and three, and they have a plus-one point differential. And so this one, this game was obviously an outlier, a 37-point loss, but just a huge thrashing by the Cowboys at the hands of the Minnesota Vikings. Bengals pulling off the win in Pittsburgh Sunday, 37-30. Joe Burrow, again, 24-39, 355, four TDs. Bengals go to 6-4. While the Ravens go to 7-3, 13-3 win over the Panthers. Chiefs win a shootout, a semi-shootout. In Inglewood over the Chargers, 30-27. Travis Kelsey with three TDs in this game, six catches for 115 yards. Mahomes, 20 of 34, 329. Chiefs making even more of a statement, going to 8-2 in the AFC West. Now three games up on the Chargers, and with seven games to play, that probably should do it. This was probably the defining game in that AFC West race. And then Monday night, the Niners blowing out the Cardinals 38-10. Jimmy Garoppolo, 20-29, 228, four touchdowns as the Niners go to 6-4. And, and again, a, a weaker NFC West this year. They're tied with the Seahawks. They have that tiebreaker. Cardinals drop now to two and a half games out. Rams at three and a half out. A couple of hockey tidbits this week. First off... The Blackhawks finally retire Marion Hossa's number 81. Hossa, Hall of Famer, 500-plus career goal scorer. That's probably my biggest focus there is Hossa was not a homegrown guy. He did not have the impact that Jonathan Taze or Patrick Kane did on this organization or Duncan Keith. But Hossa was there for all three of the Blackhawks' Stanley Cup championship teams in the 2010s. And, of course, another big thing was they won the first year he was there. That was not a coincidence. It was a guy who brought a lot of leadership, something they really needed, especially with two guys in Taze and Kane, who I think had had played two years up to that point, even though they had named named Taze the captain. But two guys were very young in leading that team. And Keith and Seabrook, I think, were both fairly young at that point as well. But Marion Hossa was a guy who had really made a name for himself in Atlanta with the Thrashers, played 16 years for his career, played, I think, about eight, eight and a half in Atlanta, then got traded, I believe traded, to Pittsburgh, was a key piece in their run to the Cup Final in 08. They ultimately lost to the Red Wings in six games. Then he went to the Red Wings, and... The Red Wings lost in the final to Pittsburgh in seven games. And so Hossa seemed kind of snake-bitten for two years. This is almost like Corey Perry, except Marion Hossa did win the Stanley Cup. Marion Hossa went to the Blackhawks in the 09-10 season, helped them win the Stanley Cup in 2010, won in 2013, won in 2015, and was just probably the most important goal scorer total that they had on that team. Jonathan Taze is a great two-way forward. He's probably the most complete forward of that era or or of that dynasty. Patrick Kane, I think, is probably the best and uh, the best pure point scorer 
I would argue the best overall player. I think Taze is the most complete player. Keith was the be- their best defenseman. Crawford was their big guy in goal. Of course, he wasn't there for that first team, but Marion Hosa was the key goal scorer for that organization. Fine, fine player, and he gets his number retired by the Hawks after eight years, about half his career with that organization. You know, Speaking of guys who have dominated, dominated that era and dominated even since then, even gotten better with age, Patrice Bergeron records his thousandth career point, assisting on a goal for Brad Marchand. Rather appropriate that it was on a Marchand goal because those two guys have played together since Marchand started in this league, and they each scored two goals in the 4-0 Game 7 win in the Stanley Cup Final in Vancouver in 2011, the only Stanley Cup title they have won to this point. And then the other thing is, you know, I'd rather have Alexander Ovechkin, Sidney Crosby, probably Patrick Kane, than have Patrice Bergeron, but he is, even though I think he's the def- he's got to be the best defensive forward in the history of the NHL, he's honestly a rather underrated offensive forward, especially when you look at his last few years and how he's gotten so much better playing with Pasternak and with Marshawn on the perfection line. And so a very, very underrated offensive player, I think, when, when you... Think about the the goals he scored in Game 7 against Toronto in 2013, coming back from down 4-1 in the third period to win that series. Just time and time again, it's a guy who's really come through for Boston. And so a, a credit to him. Evgeny Malkin also playing in his 1,000th game this past week. Another guy who is honestly a bit, I, I could say even a bit undervalued, within the, the, the schism, the, the, the whole scheme of the Pittsburgh dynasty. Malkin won the Conn Smythe the first time around, led the team in points, I think, at least one of the last two times they won the Cup. Maybe should have been considered the Conn Smythe Trophy winner one or both of those other times. And just They do not, you know, obviously Crosby's a, a fine player, but Malkin is... Malkin is kind of like Hosa, I think. He's just a, a much more valuable goal scorer. And you can also remember that Crosby's won the Hart Trophy twice. Malkin also won the Hart Trophy back in 2012. Another guy who just kind of takes a back seat, more like a Yager to Lemieux. Not to say that either of those guys is nearly on, is nearly on that level necessarily, but just a guy who's kind of taken a back seat to Crosby and is also a very, uh, really a fantastic player and a future Hall of Famer. Brief little NBA note, Ben Simmons booed in his return to Philadelphia. Makes perfect sense. Actually played pretty well, finished with 11 points, 11 assists, and 7 rebounds. But the Sixers, despite the Nets having Kyrie Irving back for whatever reason, they said at least 5 games, and of course he was suspended for only 5 games, the Sixers still win by a score of 115-106. to No Embiid, no Harden, and no Tyrese Maxey. A... Very impressive win for the Sixers, who obviously have a much deeper roster than we think. I mean, obviously there's also just bad locker room juju with the Nets. And, you know, we've spoken about how poorly things have gone, how poorly things have been handled. But a really impressive win for the Sixers. Also, to be fair, very 
impressive game for Simmons to play under that kind of pressure. want to talk about a few things within the MLB, a couple of awards, MVP and Cy Young. First off, the MVP, Aaron Judge, wins the American League Most Valuable Player Award, really for the second time in his career, considering 2017 he went to Jose Altuve, the year that they admitted to to this cheating scandal, probably the worst cheating scandal in the history of sports. And Judge, as a rookie, hit a then-record 52 home runs, then broken by Pete Alonso in 2019. Judge also broke the AL record, and again, I've mentioned this so many times, it's the real record, 62 home runs in a single season. He hit 60 home runs in fewer games than Babe Ruth took. Of course, part of the controversy with Ruth and Maris was that Maris played in 162 games, Ruth played in 154 games. They both hit 60 and under 154, I believe. Judge most certainly did, hit 60 in fewer games than either of those guys, hit 61 in fewer games than it took for Maris. So just a remarkable achievement. Finished with an MLB high 1.111 OPS and 11.11 OPS, and he's the first Yankee to win the American League Most Valuable Player Award since Alex Rodriguez in 2007. And considering A-Rod's history and his admission of steroid use in 2009, by that I don't mean using steroids in 2009 necessarily, I mean that he admitted to it in 2009, it was probably the first without steroids. He's probably the first Yankee to win MVP without steroids since Don Mattingly in 1985. He also won the batting title that year, by the way. And so that's even more impressive when you consider that Derek Jeter never won a league MVP. Those years, five championships for the Yankees, Derek Jeter, Tino Martinez, Bernie Williams, Paul O'Neill, such outstanding pitchers. None of those guys ever won a league MVP. And so for Judge to do that just puts him even higher on a list of all-time Yankees, regardless of where he ends up. He has apparently spoken with the Giants. I still think he's probably going to end up with the Yankees, but the the Giants are really his hometown team. He does hail from, I believe, either Northern or Central California, and it attended Fresno State. So if he does end up somewhere else, that's where I'd I'd anticipate it'll be, but I, I honestly think he's going to end up with the Yankees again. In the National League, again, any other year this would be very impressive, but, you know, you're just going up against Judge. But Paul Goldschmidt finally winning National League MVP, I honestly think Paul Goldschmidt is maybe the best player in the history of the Arizona Diamondbacks organization. Obviously, he won this award with St. Louis. Just brilliant maneuvering by them in the front office just to get him there. But seriously, especially with you know Luis Gonzalez and his alleged, uh, ster- actually, uh, I believe proven steroid use, Paul Goldschmidt is perhaps the best player in the history of that organization. And I think he's probably one of the most underrated players in recent memory. He's you know, a quality fielder, good base stealer, great pure hitter, and a great power hitter. And really had to carry that organization for a long, long time before he ultimately ended up with the Cardinals. For this year, though, hit 317 with 35 home runs and 115 runs batted in, led the Cardinals to the National League Central Division crown, became the first Cardinal to win league MVP since Albert Pujols in 2009, who had... Uh, Pujols had won three times in a five-year span. This is seriously a long time coming for Paul Goldschmidt. He, he could have won this award multiple times, but a credit to him that he finally does. 
For the Cy Young, Justin Verlander wins the AL Cy Young, 11th pitcher in history to win it three or more times. This is his third victory. He also won American League Comeback Player of the Year after missing significant time due to injury. Again, he's age 39. He had probably the best year of his career. Led the American League with 18 wins. Led baseball with a 1.75 ERA and a sub-1 whip. A guy who finally won a game in the postseason, or in the World Series, rather, this year for the Astros as they took home the World Series fair and square. In the NL, actually I will mention Verlander, by the way, also a free agent. We'll see where he ends up. I don't know, but if even if he walked away right now, he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. NL, this one is one that will not be appreciated as much because this team did not even make the playoffs, but what a phenomenal year for Sandy Alcantara. What a phenomenal phenomenal job the Marlins have done drafting great pitching in particular. I know they had a down year and they parted ways with Mattingly, but I really like the way they have built up that organization. And this guy is an absolute ace. He's the, believe it or not, he is the first ever Cy Young winner in Marlins history, despite them having great players like Dontrell Willis, great pitchers like Dontrell Willis and Levon Hernandez, who won World Series MVP. I mean, seriously, the two times they won the World Series, the MVP of that World Series was a pitcher, Levon Hernandez and Josh Beckett. And then you factor in guys like Dontrell Willis, Bad, uh, Brad Penny, a number of fine players on the hill for the Marlins. Sandy Alcantara is the first. 228 and two-thirds innings pitched this year. That is turning back the clock, but more so, he had six complete games more than any other team in baseball in total. And so, I mean, that's reminiscent of Babe Ruth, 1990. I know people talk about, and it's true, Shohei Otani being the next Babe Ruth, but a credit to Alcantara because the la- the only thing I can really think of that compares to that stat is 1919. Babe Ruth, in really the end, like the last year of the dead ball era, hit more home runs than every other, I think, than any team did combined. And so a phenomenal, phenomenal year for him. And hopefully he gets even more recognition from fans. Both pitchers, by the way, won unanimously. Talking about a couple of trades, uh, a couple of moves, really. Diamondbacks acquire Kyle Lewis, Rookie of the Year for the Mariners in 2020, from the Mariners for catcher and outfielder Cooper Cooper Hummel. The Mets acquire Eliezer Hernandez and Jeff Brigham from the Marlins for Franklin Sanchez. The Angels acquire Hunter Renfro. I I like that deal for Mike Trout, and if Shohei Otani stays for those guys, gets some protection in that lineup. He's a good outfielder as well. They acquire him from, him from the Brewers for right-handed pitchers Jansen Junk, Elvis Pagaro. Jansen Junk is a great name, by the way, especially for a pitcher. Elvis Pagaro and Adam Seminaris. Also, Isaiah Kiner-Falefa returns to the Yankees on a one-year, $6 million deal. He honestly, he likely remains the bridge shortstop until Anthony Volpe gets his time, but honestly was a decent contact hitter at the bottom of the order for much of the year. I know that team, the Yankees certainly struggled in the American League Championship Series in terms of hitting, but he was a good contact hitter for most of the year and provided solid defense at shortstop for the Yankees. And the last thing, really, just a really cool thing to hear, Olivia Pichardo becomes the first woman ever to make a Division I baseball team, doing so with Brown University this week. She apparently 
threw over 70 miles an hour in some high school game, I believe, at Guaranteed Rate Field in Chicago, home of the White Sox, at age 15. And to think how she is probably, her arm has probably matured in the last three years, that's really, really exciting to see. And I can tell you, I could never, a lot of people cannot hit 70 miles an hour. I know, I know it's supposed to be faster, I think, within the college game, but still, at age 15, it hit 70 miles an hour. And for just the rarity of having a, a woman, or at that point, a, a girl playing baseball, and then throwing 70 miles an hour, I would have to think she can pitch over 80. But if she's got good stuff, I mean, if she's got good breaking pitches, and the fact that she could even make it on, uh, just really, really cool thing to see. A freshman walk on this year. And I will also brag as someone who was born in Manhattan and comes from this area, a native of Queens, New York. So that does it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your time. I wish you the happiest of Thanksgivings. To you and your family, we all need a little positivity right now, and I can just tell you to listen to Ted Lasso. Believe, because good things come to those who wait.